Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Keith Robinson, who is the specifications guru at Dialogue Design. Dialogue Design has studios in San Francisco, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and Toronto. Keith has spent the last 40 years mastering his specification craft. Keith, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, no problem. So, so Keith, tell me more about your background. Well, I, I kind of like to call myself a mad materials scientist. <laughs> I think I, I grew up with Bill Nye, the science guy, and I just sort of went in a different direction. <laughs> so I started off in industrial design, and, and rather than designing the objects of every day, I actually became more fascinated by the materials. And yeah, it, it was a good fit for architecture and structural engineering. Perfect. Is there a favorite story you like to retell your friends? Oh, about the time maybe I shot a bear. <laughs> what, what, what happened there? Well, I, I learned that you have to solve problems creatively once in a while. I was, uh, had a summer job as a surveyor, and I was the dumb end of the chain, oh. chaining a, a township at the time. Yeah. And we had a, a grizzly bear that kept tearing apart our camp. Yeah. And so the senior crew thought after four days of not sleeping or nights of not sleeping, thought putting me up in a tree would be kind of interesting. And then when the bear came into camp, if I shot a gun, that that would scare the bear. Oh. Oh. And what happened was the, this gun had been around, I think, since the First World War in the back of some guy's truck. Yeah. And the manual sights were not well aligned and in shooting my, in my sleepless mind thought if I could hit that tree just behind the bear, that that would make an awfully big noise and really scare the bear. Yeah. And I ended up shooting the bear in the ear instead. Oh, <laughs> it died instantly. Of course. Oh, <laughs> but uh, the lesson learned from that is, is yeah. you don't always make the most obvious decisions since they're usually not the safest and somebody at some point in time is liable to get hurt. So I apply that knowledge to to my specification writing career as well I, I take the time needed to make myself familiar with what needs to be done yeah i mean is is that sort of i guess if you had to sort of narrow down what a great specifier uh, does is that sort of one of your key uh, points yeah you know a good day for me is nobody gets sued and nobody died so <laughs> hopefully yeah that's true <laughs> yeah so you deal with so many different types of materials. How do you, how do you stay up to date with all this stuff? I, I've developed, and I think most specifiers do, a cadre of trusted advisors, you know, people who I like to talk to, who I can set, make decisions from, who aren't so much interested in making the sale mm -hmm. as much as they are about making what's technically correct for the project. Mm -hmm. So I have contacts throughout the Pacific Northwest into Eastern Canada, the Northeast United States. I'm going to say even up to Alaska and one poor soul out in Hawaii. Well, maybe he's not the poor soul, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, one criteria, right? You know, they're not interested in making the sale. They're trying to do what's 
right for the project. What other attributes of sort of these trusted advisors can you can you tell me about? Well, they're very good at asking questions. Uh-huh. When, when it comes to construction materials, I'm, I'm going to say I'm a specialist generalist. So I, I know a lot about a lot of stuff, but nothing specific enough to get myself to a conclusion. So those general ideas in talking to one of these trusted advisors, they, that trusted advisor will try to focus that conversation onto something that's actually going to help me out. And in the process, probably help themselves out as well, if, if for not no other reason to get me off the telephone and get me <laughs> onto somebody else, right? Or uh, nine times out of 10, it's, uh, it, it's a beneficial relationship. And uh, that person that's helping will usually end up in the specification, which is good for them, good for us, so we know where we're going. Yeah, so, so these trusted advisors, did you meet them at face-to-face or just people that you've sort of reached out over the years that you develop a relationship? How, how do they kind of form? It's very holistic. I, th- I think yeah. both of what you said, I go to conferences and meet people. They're the people that are at the technical stands, as you and I were introduced through, yeah. through mutual friends. Yeah. And then you introduced me to somebody else and that somebody <laughs> else then called me and then I called them. We exchanged emails. We've got, sure. we've got, a, we've got something happening. Yeah. No, that's very cool. So even at this a very long time, but the enthusiasm for your job and the way you talk about your job is, is contagious. Now, what do you like most about what you do? It would be the research and development side. It's yeah. always looking for something new every single day. Yeah. Something that it's got to excite me a little bit, but usually what I'm looking for is making sure that my architects and engineers are excited because when they're excited, great things happen. Mm. Buildings come up, stuff that wouldn't normally happen ends up being created. So we designed an arena. It's in this beautiful stainless steel shell that looks like an oil drop. We designed uh, museums, we've designed laboratories, we've designed infrastructure. One of, the, one of the ridges we worked on is actually now recognized as a landmark of our city here. And the city uses it for promotional materials. Everybody that comes into town recognizes the bridge. Just having that involvement of the project, it's very, very exciting. Even though my name's not on the, the design, mm-hmm. just knowing that I've contributed to that and the outcome is exciting and rewarding enough. That's very cool. Now, you said that you were looking for new things and sort of researching like how do you approach that i mean you have trust advisors but what, what about the other stuff do you do you search online or are there certain publications you look at like where do you get your inspiration there's two or three trusted publications i guess in that sense both are construction specifications type magazines i also look at engineering magazines everything from like shotcrete yeah to insulation to steel they all have something in there which Will usually interest me. Most bizarre magazine is probably from the National Fire Protection Association. What, what was that? The National Fire Protection Association, okay. NFPA. They, they talk about how buildings burn down and how people die, which is actually kind of morbid. But in through other people's suffering, you kind of get a sense of where things have to go to make things right. Yeah. I also speak a, a lot with our designers here, uh, the young ones in particular, because they're coming out of university with fresh ideas, mm. trying to create the, the newest, greatest thing. And it was, as one designer here says to me, he says, Keith, your job is not to tell me no. <laughs> so I have to come up with some way to say yes, or at least preposition that with a, but you might try this instead. <laughs> 
So they, they, they keep me on my toes. It keeps me fresh. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's say you, you go out there and you find a new idea that's kind of cool. So what do you do from there? I mean, you obviously you might reach out, contact them. What's, what's your process? Really, it's getting down to the, the, the basis for their, for their exploration. What is it they're trying to do? What is it they're trying to achieve? Yeah. I think that's one of those advantages for me being an industrial designer. I already come from a design background, uh-huh. but it's not architecture. It's not structural engineering. But industrial design requires both. You couldn't purchase a chair, lean back in that chair, and not have it collapse underneath you. So I really understand how those materials work together. Whether it's a door, whether it's a curtain wall on a building, whether it's a coating on a bridge or some special finish on the floor. I, I just keep digging until I find those needs. I think very much the same way as I rely on my trusted advisors. You know, it's the interview process. Mm-hmm. It, it's talking to people. I, I call it a gambit. It's like playing a, a game of chess. You go in with three or four questions and all of a sudden they'll slide their pawn or their, their king out to a, a place where you didn't expect it and you've immediately got to change your plan of attack to something else. Really, the whole idea there is to win the game to the benefit of everybody. <laughs> you sound like you play chess. I was a high school nerd. I was in the chess club. What can I say? Oh, you did. I played a little bit of chess. It drove me nuts. I liked the strategy aspect, but I couldn't shut off my brain. Yeah. No, my grandson plays chess with me now. It's, it's refreshing. Very nice. I like that. So, all right. So, let's say you run across the new material. Like... In terms of using it in an actual specification to redo a a building or build a new building, what sort of things do you need to see in place for you to feel comfortable putting that forward? There's a lot of trust that has to be built up. And that goes back to the trusted advisor thing. If I'm getting the the sales pitch, I Mm -hmm. am pretty much turned off right away. Mm -hmm. If I'm hearing from people limitations and benefits presented in a way that I can understand that's actually applicable to, I'm going to say I'm more liable to take a risk mm-hmm. really. Cause I'm risking my, my company's liability. Yes. Errors and emissions insurance. If I'm wrong, it can cost hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. It can create some sleepless nights. So I, w- I want to make sure that who we're calling and who we're talking to, that their products will actually fit. And that usually comes down to a record of research and development on that side that could include the, the amount of time they've been in the industry. Like there are companies that have been around even longer than I've been around, right? So the, I, I was only, I was, I was around when Pontius uh, was a pilot, but there's other people that have been around since the Dead Sea Report. Kind of thing. <laughs> I'd like to kind of rely on those people and what they know. So companies that have been around for a long time that actually have products installed that even if they're new companies, that so they have that old company mentality and, and are aware of testing and, and not just coming up to me and saying, me too, me too. I've got the latest and greatest. You want to use me? You would improve. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> the sustainability aspect, right? Even yeah. that, you know, we're fully recyclable. I say, so am I, but I'm just not ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sustainability, that's a big one. How do you, how do you sift through that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough these days. I can't say that I enjoy that aspect very much. I know it's important to the world, the planet that we live on, but it's hard. You've got lead, you've got green globes, you've got living building challenge. You've got all these different competing systems and every one of them wants to distinguish themselves from each other by saying, well, this schmoo is more toxic than your schmoo. 
So I'm going to include that in my listing, but it's different than your listing. And you've got to try and sort all that stuff out. And I, I've had to actually kind of reduce the noise on that. There's like information overload on all of those sustainability rating systems. So I just look at it as a performance. That's it. It's, it's like structural steel to me. Mm -hmm. Do you have a certain rating for VOCs? Do you have a certain rating for compressive strength in the case of steel yeah. or tensile strength? So if I break it down to the actual properties and materials, it makes it easier to decide whether to include those materials on a, on a project or not. Yeah. How about uh, coatings? You know, coatings. I love coatings. Oh, I love coatings. <laughs> I love to hate coatings some days. <laughs> <laughs> what do you hate about coatings? Tell me. Tell me. Well, again, this is one of those areas, as I said, I, I, I know enough to be dangerous. I, my, my designers will look at coatings and tell me I want some epoxy. And I'm like looking at it and saying, well, let's see, full UV exposure, temperature shock sensitive substrate. I don't think so. <laughs> but then I have to start looking at, well, what's the, what kind of VOC do we have in the building? Do I, what kind of flow do you want? Do I have to actually add in any dilutants uh, that's going to affect those, those sustainable ratings or not? That's usually where I'll, I'll dial in and start talking to people and saying, help. And, <laughs> and because I, I'll know enough to say, well, I think I want to go to a polyurethane. Do I want, what kind of polyurethane do I want? Aspartic or do I want some other moisture cured polyurethane? Yeah. Do I want to go to an acrylic polysiloxane? Do I want to go to a polyurea? I've got enough to sort of break it down to those categories and then sure. sort of carry on a intelligent conversation with those people that I have to ask. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Now, yeah. I mean, specifications get, like you said, complicated real fast. What's the most difficult spec that you've ever had to put together? Wow. What stands out? Like, what was just, you're racking your brain, you figured it out, so you're, you're happy about it. What, what really got you stretching? Well, the one that really got me stressing, and it was for a zoo, oh. local zoo, they wanted these big crowd control gates on the front entrance so that if an animal got loose, they could close the gates reasonably, but they also didn't want to like crush people in the, in the mass exodus to get out of the building oh. or out of the, out of the park. And so if you can imagine a steel gate, which is 20 feet wide, offset pivot, yeah. and closes, and just like if you were to walk through your grocery store, door and if it closed on you it would automatically spring back open without crushing you to death these gates probably weighed 30 tons a piece mm -hmm. and they open and close just like a supermarket door yeah so yeah so i had to describe all of the systems that that go into there for the feedback i had to describe the performance requirements i had to make sure that the motors that we were ordering were capable of handling that kind of torque Stopping and starting, the motors actually run at 6,000 RPM to get that kind of torque. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, there are three gates across the front of the zoo that, that do that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, funny. It's one of those things where the contractor looked at me and said, are you sure? <laughs> I said, I'm absolutely sure. So, I, I, no hubris there. And in fact, they've been operating successfully for almost 10 years now. Yeah, Wow. So uh, you're in touch with a lot of different trends in the marketplace. What sort of trends are you most excited about? The biggest trend right now is BIM, building information management models, the digital communication strategies and the ability to tag specification information into the model to make 
coordinating the project by the general contractor and the subcontractors and suppliers easier. That they can actually extract information that is useful to them without encumbering it with too much manufacturer-specific data because that, of course, is a part of the solution that they present. And also are able to, as a manufacturer, you are actually able then to supplement the design information with, we actually supplied this. Oh, yeah, and by the way, this is how you operate and maintain this stuff. And, uh, oh, there's even an interesting little uh, QR code attached to it. So all you have to do is walk by with your your smartphone and then just point it towards whatever that component is that you're maintaining. And for the guy that has to be the plant maintenance guy that he automatically gets, that person automatically gets all that information on, on their on their handheld device. It's happening slowly, but that, that's the one thing I find to be really exciting in our in our world right now. Very nice. So you've been doing this a, a long time. At what point did you sort of feel like I kind of starting to get this and really understand what I'm doing in the area of specification? At what point did you kind of have that? Does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's an everyday thing. It's a, it's a challenge to keep up. It is. It's a challenge to keep up. It is. And you have to stay fresh. I think if, if you're not staying fresh, you don't enjoy the job very much. It becomes quite tedious. I would say I actually came to that conclusion, I'm going to say 12, 12 years into my career. Yeah. I, I, I had worked through a couple of recessions uh, through late 1970s into the 1980s and into the 1990s and worked in different parts of the world where I was project managing different things. Like I, I, I was on the team that wrote the Japanese wood frame building code. Yeah, I was on a different team that developed a timeshare condominium project in, in Egypt and another team again where we were building triage facilities in Cuba. Mm. And each one of those things gave a different perspective on, on the built environment. And by the time I had finished with the Japanese building code updates, because they didn't have any wood buildings, any wood frame buildings constructed since the Second World War and the horrendous fire bombings that had occurred. And immediately after coming back from that stint, the Kobe earthquake occurred mm -hmm. and we had built a couple of test case buildings. One was a complete housing development on the top of the mountain where they got the landfill for the new Kansai airport in Tokyo. And the other one was, the other one was a multifamily wood frame walk-up type apartment building in, in Kobe and it survived the quake wow. where all the, all the concrete framed Residential buildings around it had, had been severely compromised and, and cracked because of the force, uh, the lateral forces of, of, of the earthquake. We'd used California design guides to to update their wood frame, and and it worked. We we had some drywall cracking and, and such like that, but nothing structurally to keep people out of their homes. So at that point, I realized the value of materials and that whole aspect of writing specifications. And not only how do I put it where architects design with shapes and forms, and I had focused a lot of that, my early career on, on shape and form, I realized that writing the words was as much of a design mm -hmm. skill as, as illustrating it by pictures or as an engineer illustrating the design by formulae. Wow, must have felt really good making an impact like that in those designs. Yeah, lives were saved. As I said, a good day for me is nobody gets sued, nobody died, so. Yeah, so you're, you're dealing with all, tons and tons of information. How do you keep it all organized? Like what systems do you have in place or habits you have to sort of be able to keep that all in reasonable sort of searchability? 
I think that's a consequence of being a specifications writer. Yeah. And, and in particular, I'm quite active in the specification community and within Construction Specifications Canada and the Construction Specifications Institute on, on your side of the border. Yeah. I belong to several committees, one of which was the Omniclass, mm-hmm. which is a system of tables that define the built environment through different categories. The two categories specific to specifiers, I guess, were work results and, and elements. It also included the workers themselves and materials and spaces by form, spaces by function, other ways that you can divide up your information. So I actually put my information into those omni-class tables. And then I have essentially an Excel spreadsheet that distributes those and, and cross-links those, those different numbers so that they overlay on top of each other. So if I wanted to, say, design a building at, at the early stages, I would create a specification using an elemental format, which we actually call uniformat. And then I can break that down when I'm actually working on the project into master format components. So just more work result, more material based. So yeah, it's habitual because that's what I do is is I deal with names and numbers all day long. And then it's just, I think, a part of the way the brain sorts itself out when you're dealing with this kind of information. Like a musician thinks in notes or an artist thinks in colors, I think in section titles and numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's, I, I, maybe I'm an idiot. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> People would call me crazy for for even liking specifications, just to put it there. So is, is specifications? Do a lot of people just go, go into it? I, I think I, we had a previous conversation. You said that you you're told to do that or something. Yeah, I think most of us uh, that get into this are told. It's, it's something you, as a junior on the project. Oh, yeah, I don't want to write the specification as a senior of the project. Because it's dull and boring, I'll just make my young people do it, and then they can learn something in the process. And oh, yeah, then I, as a senior, don't have to do that. And so, yeah, I was. It was 1979 was the year I started my career, and the senior architect came up to me and said, "Keith, your handwriting." And in those days, we would write on drawings with pencil and ink and things like that. We didn't have computers back then, and. And my, as he was right, my handwriting was atrocious. It really was hard to read. So he made me write specifications. And then I was kind of good at it. And he said to me, well, if you keep up with this and you learn this, this is a job you will have for the rest of your life. <laughs> he, he says, the, all the specifiers right now, they, they have a job until they drop dead or they forget the words. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, it was kind of ironic because he ends up with dementia and he actually forgot the words, but he did have a he had a job right up to that point. So yeah, but yeah, it's not something I, I, that appeals to people. I, if people really are graphically and tactile sensitive, yeah, the, the words the words are hard. It's it's a different writing style as well. It's not like a writing style you learn in school. You have to convey information clearly, but you can't make it so clear that it becomes cryptic. So it's. There's a balance between style and content and, and how you approach the writing of it that I think requires as much thinking as, as perhaps writing music. I, I, I'm a bit of a musician as well, so I understand the, the comparison to music. Mm, okay. What do you do uh, musically? I play guitar, classical guitar, oh. jazz, piano. Oh, wow. Two different styles. One is a lot more fun than the other. <laughs> One is more rewarding than the other. I'll let you figure out which the two are. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you do anything with that? I mean, 
with family or what, what do you do? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things at Christmas time. It's nice to break out the guitar because it's portable and just sit around at, at the end of uh, Christmas dinner and just be able to pluck out some cards and, and get people singing songs and, and feeling like they're a group. Yeah, I, I I got friends that play guitar as well. And you, you meet people, it's like, oh, what do you play? And you sit down and you just start strumming away and pretty soon you've got a band. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting little community. And it's the same thing with spec writers. If I show up in New York one day and I yes. want to meet you know, a fellow spec writer, I, I, I've, I've got contacts in New York, I'd get them call and say, oh, hey, why didn't you come by the office? I'll show you what to do. Let's jam a little. Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't <laughs> Like, how do you manage this? How, do you, how did you identify that? So what's your yeah. questions? Well, what was the hardest spec you ever wrote? And, and you would be surprised at what, what people find difficult. It could be something as simple as, as you know, steel studs, which confuse everybody because they're not really structural, but they're not non-structural either. So people don't know where to draw the line as it was. Having a lot of discussions with our contracting partners on projects as to what we're actually asking people to do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you spent a lot of time, and I think very naturally, building communities and, and trusted relationships. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't live without those relationships, quite frankly. Yeah. You seem to kind of do this naturally, but I mean, any tips for people that are trying to do more of this? Because, you know, some people aren't as sort of kind of natural with sort of developing sort of these type of networks or even communities. Like, how do you see that as, as sort of something, something that someone can improve? I'm going to say Toastmasters. That's a strange answer. People don't always naturally communicate. Toastmasters teaches you to overcome your natural hesitation to talk to people. Mm-hmm. It introduces you to people and it, it says, well, this is the way you start a conversation. This is the way you introduce yourself. And more importantly, this is the way you listen. Right? Yeah. And, and that's, that's something I, I'm just thinking on my Instagram or Twitter feed or something like that. I've actually put in there, interrogate, interview, and incorporate. <laughs> right? So I interrogate the specification because it doesn't care. It doesn't got any feelings. So I'll, yeah. I'll just interrogate it to make it right. But in meeting with people either on the trusted advisor side or my design side, or just having a conversation, I, I, I really do set up like an interview. I want to go in, I want to find out what it is that you want this thing to do, how to make it how to make it work. Yeah. Or actually say this isn't gonna work and feel comfortable that I can pass that over without without putting anybody's nose out of joint. Yeah. And then the incorporation part of it, that's the that's the wordsmithing, making sure it actually gets into the, the project information in a way that anybody that's bidding can see exactly what's required without having to impart any of their own interpretation. That's hard because I have to think about how other people are going to be reading those words. Uh-huh. I actually almost have to interview myself in that sense, which mm. is really tough. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Toastmasters. I mean, I'm assuming you took Toastmasters. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh-huh. We had a Toastmaster chapter within our studio. We're big enough. Uh-huh. We could, uh, could actually join a, a local group. Very cool. So one last question. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Oh, knowing your, your interest in codings ah. could have gone a lot deeper into codings sure. in that sense. Because <laughs> as I said, codings are, are probably as a category, one of the more difficult things I have to specify. Yeah. And there's no real easy way to get through that. 
specifications other than talking to people with knowledge. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think so. I agree. It's even with people that I spend a lot of time with that are way more knowledgeable than me on the subject. I mean, there's always things that comes up that's like, oh, we haven't heard of that before. And then kind of have to figure out how best to deal with this. So if there's people that spend a very long time sort of thinking about the stuff that gets the, the curveball, then imagine for someone that's coming in that isn't spending all their time on it. It could be quite daunting. Yeah, and I think that is precisely why the design community immediately says, oh, it's a proxy, because that's all they know and it's the only thing they can figure out. Yeah. Great. Well, Keith, thank you so much. Your enthusiasm for the topic and knowledge on the topic was fantastic, and I'm sure everyone got a lot out of it. Well, thanks, Tats. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for the opportunity. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.